0: Thank you.
1: Welcome back to the show, you beef-loving wonder. Today, we're talking a lot about beef because I sat down with Jeff from Colorado Craft Beef. Jeff has a really interesting background story in terms of losing almost 100 pounds today after Sean Baker gave him the nudge at a conference to go carnival because he is the creator and purveyor of some of the most delicious beef I've had in my mouth for the recent history. So we talk a lot about that, his journey there, and how he's doing things a little bit differently in the beef business. Jeff is a self-proclaimed numbers nerd, so he really takes a business approach to this, whilst also teaming up with and collaborating with some pretty big names in this space, including Jocko Willink and Sean Baker, who he told us eats somewhere between three to five pounds of meat per day, by the way. And what it's like teaming up and building an organization, an organization that is boots on the ground here in America and shoring up our food supply so that we can feed a lot of people, a lot of good quality products So it's quite a fascinating conversation. It's a slightly different look at the beef production system, challenges a little bit of this conventional versus regenerative uh, wishy-washy stuff that we can get lost in sometimes. So it's a fun one and I think you'll learn some stuff today. So let's get into the show. Yo, welcome back to the show, you radical human, you, you know, we like some beef in these parts. And today I'm talking with a guy who knows beef inside and out. And I actually must say I ate some of his beef last night, Colorado craft beef. Unbelievably delicious. Jeff, you're flying in from Colorado. You join us in the studio. Welcome, mate. Yeah. It's good to have you. How are you feeling? Feeling good, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. Great spot you have here. So yeah, it's pretty cool, right? That yeah, absolutely is. I'm excited to I've listened to you on a couple of podcasts and we were connected for a a mutual connection with the meat mafia and I I love your take on all things uh, beef and some of the healthy pushback you've got from a logistical standpoint as well Mm -hmm. in terms of you know thoughts on how farming should be done to feed the masses if we want to get you know good beef in people's hands and all of that but before we get into that uh, you've also got a pretty cool story about your journey in terms of health and weight loss and all of that stuff so start wherever you want to start maybe this goes all the way back to childhood or maybe it's more recent like tell us a little bit of the story. Like who is Jeff? Uh,
2: Jeff is a always humble. get, <laughs> you gotta start with that. Right. Uh, always humble guy from humble beginnings. Uh, my family's, uh, just like most other families in America, middle, middle class jobs. My dad worked for the military. Uh, my mom had a small real estate company, uh, grew up well went to a small junior college in Oregon, went to Colorado state university, got a degree in agricultural business, mm. uh, minors in finance and accounting. So gives a very different perspective. Um, everybody will say business is business, but not really. Uh, if you look at the models of the two colleges, then this is really where my origin story started. If you take a finance class at Colorado state university or any other university, a straight finance class from the business college, they will make this statement that if you're not paying taxes, you're not actually making money with your company.
0: Mm.
2: We could probably all agree with that. If you flip that to the ag college, the college of agriculture, they're talking about income deferment, avoiding taxes. And the reason behind that is most people in generational agriculture are not going to sell the farm.
0: Mm.
2: You're not worried about making money. You're not worried about showing a positive P&L because you're not going to sell it. Whereas if you own a gas station, the gas station's not worth anything if it's not profitable. So that different mentality of money and how the business works is something that's followed me since then. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things, you know, through my career in agriculture and finance and I'm a recovering private equity and sales guy. So I've got this weird diverse set of skills that as we get to the Colorado craft beef story, uh, meshed with my wife's story in such a way that it's like, man, why wouldn't we do something like this? Mm. Um, and it gives us a different perspective. Uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters in agriculture love y'all to death. A lot of them haven't worked out of the sector. A lot of them haven't seen the other side of the business. I mean, I know cow calf operators that produce calves that have never been inside a harvest facility mm. to them. The commodity they sell is a 600 pound calf in October without any rhyme or reason for the rest of the industry. Mm that disconnect, especially in the cattle industry, is what's causing a lot of the issues we're seeing as an industry and a society today. Uh, because the pork and the chicken industry
1: are exceptionally vertical, mm-hmm. because they turn faster. Mm-hmm. Help me understand that term for the listener. This because I've I've heard this from a couple of people. Uh, this vertically integrated system, like mm-hmm. pork and chicken, versus this more um, disconnected system. What are the tangible metrics to help somebody that's kind of unfamiliar with this? What does that actually mean and look like?
2: Yeah. So the easy way to understand it is most of the pork and chicken industry is driven from the top down.
1: Mm-hmm. The
2: harvesters, you know, the Tysons of the world uh, dictate how things are going to go. And there are, uh, contract producers that are typically, you know, rural farmers and wherever that produce at spec for those companies. So it's controlled top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Pork industry is much the same, like Seaboard Pork at a Gaiman, Oklahoma. They own their own farrowing facilities. They own their own finishing facilities. They own their own processing. The beef industry is in a lot of ways, not like that. And the main reason for that, if we look at the numbers, because I am a bona fide numbers dork, a chicken that is harvested commercially is about two months old. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of turns in a a year. You don't have to carry those expenses for a long time. A hog is four to six months old. Mm -hmm. A finished steer is 16 to 24 months old Mm -hmm. and exceptionally more money per unit. So you start thinking about the economics of carrying that money. It's incredible especially at scale so you don't have to do that with those other industries and they're a lot more hmm, efficient would probably be the right word you know the breeding they do i mean they can robotically harvest chickens now because the chicken is exactly the same shape cattle are not so there's a lot of things in the cattle industry that do not lend themselves to that very industrialized model of the chicken and the pork industry mm-hmm. Although we in the beef industry catch a lot of that same heat.
1: And what's interesting about that is potentially the, you know, the blessing and the curse, the, the, cost of progress, if you will, that even though these are super efficient systems, like you said, all chickens have been bred to be exactly the same size and shape so the machinery can process them, then they have to use sometimes uh, inputs that people may not feel the best about. You know, mm-hmm. like the good thing about cattle is regardless of what term we use, and we'll get into some terms and some of the fluffiness around it, you know, regenerative, grass-fed, grass-finished, grass-fed, grain-finished, etc. At least most cows spend a good chunk of their life out on grass doing it naturally. And I think like chicken and pork gets a little more, you know, flack in that regards because these big caged animal feeding operations are very different. Right. And there's a lot of synthetic inputs to create something that is very, very similar that doesn't map on as much with the cattle. There's a little bit of uh, a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more organic. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah. And the other issue you run into is really from a production standpoint. If you're a hog operator, there's a disease called PERS, P-E-R-S, that if you go in a hog facility. You shower in and you shower out, mm. you wear their clothing down to your underwear. You don't kick anything in that's from outside because those facilities are very, very, very susceptible to incoming diseases. And you have to look at that and say, well, okay, we have to do that to a certain degree. There's big hog feeding operations in Colorado, which, you know, half the year, you really couldn't do that outside. So you have to think of the market and how we have to feed the masses. To understand the functionality of wanting to, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, so to say, because the Band-Aid might be holding the arm on. Mm. And there's a lot of people that miss those connections. And I'm not saying we can't get better. I want to I want to lead with that. Every sector of agriculture I've worked in, from grass seed to hops to, you know, I used to call on Coors as their capital account manager when I was uh, in corporate America, to cattle operations, my own included. There are things we can do better. Mm-hmm. What I disagree with is the sensational argument that a lot of people want to make that agriculture is not trying to do better Mm. because that is happening at a large scale. We're producing more with less in every industry than we did 30 or 40 years ago with more regulation an exceptionally high cost of capital and more people to feed than we've ever had. Mm -hmm. Those two things need to work together to help us all have some symbiosis mm-hmm. and the two sides of the coin are exceptionally against talking to one another. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, what you guys are doing or the meat mafia guys or Dr. Baker, or Saladino, some of it does get a little overblown with trying to get sound bites. But in general, I think we're all trying to bring that conversation to the middle. Yeah. Uh, Cause I know a lot of people in ag that they should not go to Denver. They should not go on a podcast. They need to do what they do but that also doesn't help the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, my wife Kara and I founded Colorado craft beef. Yes, of course, it's a business that needs to make money, but it was more for the mission. It was to engage people with agriculture, not educate because a lot of people say, Oh, we're going to educate the consumer. I'm like, man, that comes from a pretty uh, arrogant place. In my opinion, let's engage these people while at the same time, Hey, if you're going to buy beef at the grocery store, go nuts. Mm -hmm. It's safe. It's nutritious we at colorado craft beef can do some things that other industry folks cannot i'm not here to say mine is the best i know i value propositions that i can provide to customers but i do that without demonizing anybody else in the industry Mm. and that is our biggest hang up with most of this direct to consumer stuff is everybody is trying to get ahead by stepping on the throat of the guy on the other side of the fence and agriculture as a whole is depending on how you do the math one to two percent of the population Hmm. We can't be eviscerating one another, trying to capture the market.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've always felt as though um, collaboration is much healthier than competition, mm-hmm. especially when uh, you know we're fighting uh, a giant, if you will, in in terms of um, whether you want to call them nefarious interests. In terms of the demonization of agriculture and meat, the push towards plant based the Attacks around you know climate and you know all these other ad hominins and emotional arguments etc. So we do need to work together and to have people stepping on the throats. It doesn't seem like very hopeful. And I think a point you raised there is really important to borrow from a, a mutual friend slash connection, Jocko Willink. He often says that there are no perfect solutions. Mm-hmm. There are only trade-offs. And in complex situations, which feeding millions of people is a very complex situation, there is no perfect solution. And somebody can take to a soapbox and say, no, this is the way it has to be for everybody. Hmm. But you articulate quite well that what is ideal for one person might not even be possible for another person. And it's very varied. And that in this conundrum of trying to figure out how to... Ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to feed people. We want to get them the the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, which we believe to be ruminant animal meat, get it on their plates then sometimes we might be missing the forest for the trees, like Mm -hmm. splitting hers over all of this stuff. So how do you kind of square that circle between you've identified that there are some problems, but there has to be problems when you're trying to solve a huge puzzle piece like this. And um, how do you kind of, yeah, just find your own space in that or your voice in that in terms of helping maybe cut through some of the dogmatism around this is the only way and, you know, how you do it versus how somebody else does it and the location, et cetera, on that. Yeah.
2: It's interesting because depending on who you're talking to, there may be a conversation to be had, and there very well may not be. Um, you know, actually, there's a couple of guys at my Jiu Jitsu gym in Denver. Uh, shout out to Denver Compound if you guys want to train. Oof. Good, good group of dudes. There's a couple of vegan guys in there. We call we jokingly call them the Winkle tw- twins from the, you know the Facebook movie. They're both mm-hmm. vegan. I'm constantly giving them a bad time. Like, man, you guys could probably finish that choke if you ate some steak. <laughs> and then, you know, when they catch me, they're like, you know, you'd be a little faster yeah. if you ate less steak, but it's in a good mannered yeah. way. So, it's, and I asked them one day, I said, Hey, why, why do you guys not eat meat? And they said, it's really not even a moral thing for us. We just think we feel better when we don't eat meat. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. They're like we appreciate what you do. Like it's, there's no animosity. They're like, Hey, this works for me. Like, oh, cool. Right. I'm glad that works for you. And, you know, they're great guys. Uh, so one, I try to square it with who are you talking to? What are they trying to get to? Mm. You know, it's like if you're doing a business deal and the guy shows up to the first meeting, I mean, with a hammer to try to negotiate, I'm out. We're not, we're not going to get a deal done. And if we do, you're not going to bring a smaller hammer next time. It's just going to continually get worse. So if you understand where somebody's coming from, it can usually help you to manage your own expectations and that's really one of the things i do and then um luckily with the finance and private equity background you get a very different vision of the world when you play in that space um one of my mentors in the private equity space uh actually he's on our board with the beef company uh harvard law grad mba from mit former goldman sachs guy got his undergrad at brown not a bad guy to Pretty know smart. yeah and he told me, I said, man, walk me through this private equity thing. What am I not seeing? And he goes, you remember the Matrix movie? I was like, yeah, this is just like watching that green screen. Mm. Are you working in a business or on a business? And you have to be able to look at the on portion, not the in portion. Because if you want to worry about how straws get to Starbucks or whatever, you're going to miss the picture. So you had it, it almost was a retraining of my brain from operational you know, financial accounting to How does, how does we really make the sausage, Mm. you know, for lack of a better metaphor, because everybody wants to own their talking points or own their position. Uh, I think it was Plato that said true wisdom is knowing that, you know, nothing
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I can get behind that. Mm -hmm. I think I know how to do an Ezekiel choke and I go roll with the B team (laughs) yesterday and I was incorrect. I did not apparently know how to do that. Um, but that humility to look around and not want to just beat your chest on social media or whatever it is uh, is one of those things that I think has kept us you know, engaged with the community, but also relatable.
1: Yeah, it's very important. You know, I, I love this quote: "The the less you know, the more stubbornly you know it." And uh, we're trying to be very conscious with the conversations we have on this podcast because on one hand you and i know you agree with this uh, at least to a point you know you want to support regenerative systems and huge regenerative farms but you also don't want to create this echo chamber where you're basically making anybody that can't do because they can't afford or they don't have access to regenerative farms like feel like bad or wrong for not supporting these systems and that there are multiple paths up the mountain there are many ways to skin a cat and um, you know just trying to stay aware of that and not not get so evangelical on the soapbox about like this is the only way Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's very very important but you know to tackle something like that you know because you said you've got to figure out what the person's uh, even like going towards and if there is a conversation to be had so what would you say like as um you know as as a counter argument if you will or a counterpoint to you know the the good movement and the growing awareness around regenerative systems. And maybe sometimes this idea that if we just switched everybody overnight to a regenerative system, like we'll save the world Mm -hmm. because maybe it's not as simple or as easy or even possible to do that. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. I would say
2: yes. Um, you know, my one, I don't want to say problem, but my one grind with the regenerative movement is its sustainability 2.0, right? 10 years ago, I was talking, are you doing sustainable farming? Are you doing sustainable farming? That was everybody's buzzword that wasn't in the industry. Regenerative's that new buzzword. And for anybody that wants to support it, you know, we are regenerative. That's what we do. We've ranched on the same location for 110 years. So mm-hmm. I think by definition, we're at least doing okay. But when people want to, I mean, we actually got a message yesterday. Do you use regenerative practices? Yes, I can buy that. Mm-hmm. But when somebody says, are you regenerative? I'm like, well, the problem with that in my head is if you're that binary, regenerative, you're now insinuating that the rest of the market is degenerative. That, that's something that I, I really push back against because regenerative for Will Harris, I listen to your guys' show with him, great, po- great show, by the way what he can do from a regenerative standpoint is different than what we can do Mm -hmm. in Colorado. Um, I've shared this story on some other podcasts, like to give you an idea of what we deal with in the ag world, the ranch where we live, there's three main roads on the ranch. They're about five miles east to west separated. And last year we had a big storm roll through. It was like June or July on the far Western road, five miles from my house. We got five inches of rain overnight three miles to the east of that at my father-in-law's place where my wife grew up, they got three inches mm. and a mile and a half east of that, we got one. Mm. That changes how you have to graze. That changes what you can do, let alone soil types, forage types in the pastures. So there's no silver bullet answer. And I think that's where everybody's like, we should do i mm. Z. I'm like, well, probably. I'm not saying it's a bad idea, mm-hmm. but in practice, it may not work. You know, it's, it's like the attorney that's never litigated a case. He read some cool books. He can make great arguments, but if he goes against a seasoned trial lawyer, he might get the brakes speed off of him. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets very hard in the ag space because, I mean, even across our ranch, we can't do the same thing. So for somebody to say, these are regenerative practices, you really got to zoom that out mm-hmm. and be very collaborative to use your word with your definition because i mean four miles from us is hard packed clay we're in the sand hills that's different than will harris who gets 40 inches of rain a year and we get 11. he Mm -hmm. has trees and things like that we don't we live in the grasslands so that that very dogmatic approach to a definition in something so complex back to jocko uh, creates a dichotomy that is relatively untenable for someone that doesn't live in the industry. Mm. And that's the hard part for us is everybody's like, do you do X, Y, Z? And it's like, well, I could write you a five page white paper on why we do some of that, but not all of that. But they don't want to hear that. They, they just want a yes or no. Mm-hmm. Cause if you start to answer a question, they're like, Oh, so you don't. And that's a tough deal, especially, you know, most of our business is direct to consumer. So you have to be very clear with how you start to message that. Uh, and that's where social media and all the other things come into play but it's that deeper dive into understanding i mean the mrna cow vaccine thing we got hundreds of emails mm. and uh, there was one woman in particular well i've researched this a lot well my wife has a master's degree in cow nutrition spent 10 years in school and 10 years in pharmaceutical sales in the beef industry define a lot please mm-hmm not saying we support it, but define a lot. What yeah. does that mean? Because we're in the industry, we do this mm-hmm. every day. And to be clear, for anybody listening, mRNA vaccines do not exist for cattle. Mm-hmm. They don't. I don't and I know there was a senator in one of the states, Missouri maybe, that's like, I gave two doses yesterday. Well, I don't know what the heck he is talking <laughs> about, but they don't exist. <laughs> and But because somebody saw something on social media and a wave was created, man we spent hours combating that yeah and all because of true false arguments which mRNA vaccines were a totally weird deal because it doesn't even exist I'm like why are we fighting a fire that's fictitious <laughs> it's so bizarre um, but it's that kind of stuff ad yeah. nauseum. when you're also trying to run a ranch
1: well it's super difficult because <sighs> There's a saying that real thinking is difficult. That's why people just rearrange the prejudices and call it thinking mm, I've never heard that but I think we need that on a t-shirt, too It's tough, right? Like this this word of nuance is not as easy as Adopting a whole suite of beliefs that is just like yes this and then that means all of this And when you're like well a little bit of this and a little bit of that It's just like it puts people in a very funny position and I think there is you know, like bigger issues at play there in terms of even going back to the schooling system and how we're raised to not really be taught how to think, but Mm -hmm. be told what to think. And then the issue and the mistrust, and I see the mistrust in um, professionals and scientists because of what's happened culturally around human health over the last few years, That. People now have a rampant distrust of authority figures because they've not acted in ways that have engendered trust. So, like, well, and like all the sugar
2: studies from the sixties are paid for by the sugar. Number, all that stuff's coming to light at the same time, yeah. And that that's mounted the distrust in a way that's, in my opinion, relevant. Yeah, it's exceptionally relevant, but maybe a little overblown. Mm. I don't know. That's there's a lot. I mean, you could you could spend an entire career trying to figure that out. Yeah. But it's, it, I, I've yet to see anything that's truly a true false. Yeah. And that nuance, you know, Rogan uses that term all the time. And I love the guy for it because there's nothing that exists for him that's binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think more of us need to get creative in our thought process to try to understand. Um, when I was on Stunt's podcast, I made a comment. I said, too many people are worried about being right than being correct. hmm Like they want, you know, they want me to look at you and say, you're Right they want that dopamine hit. I would rather somebody say, you're 90% of the way there, but think about this 10%. I'd be like, oh man, that's great. Mm-hmm. I would rather have a correct opinion, an informed opinion, than have somebody
1: pat me on the head and tell me I'm right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's 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 really good, and I'm and I'm glad we're having these conversations because I think um, that that that's what we're trying to do here. You know, from even even all the way down to the root of the podcast, the titled Radical Health Radio, we're trying to take a radical stance against all of these things, and that goes all the way down to questioning all of your beliefs like the mm-hmm. moment you believe like 100 you have the capital t truth is the moment you stop learning and you just you're closed off from any alternative opinion i don't think that's you know evolution of our own thought processes or contributing to the conversations and then just creating echo chambers we could sit here and only interview regenerative farmers or we mm-hmm. could bring people on that like you said well i've how, how many acres again do you have over there Uh, So my wife and I just have a
2: section, we have a square mile, which is about 600 acres, but the family combined is in the tens
1: of thousands. Right. And you said it's been running healthily uh, and it's doing all right. And that is regenerative in a way. And Mm -hmm. I think that I was having this conversation with a couple of other guests earlier today that, um, Generally people like you said that a lot of farms and ranches are generational. They want to be passed on You want to create resiliency within this system. So you're not out there, you know Just causing havoc on the land and not mm-hmm. being intentional about this stuff It's actually you know a lot more than um, people would even think we often think about the future of being in the hands of scientists And I'm always like I want the future in the hands of like the people that are growing our food Yeah, the, they know what's out <laughs> probably the most controversial statement. I've made to the agricultural
2: community is Oh, you're a cattleman in Colorado. Oh, you raise corn in Colorado. You raise soybeans in Iowa or you grow oranges in Florida. You're not a farmer. Mm -hmm. You're in real estate. You don't own, you don't have cows that are going to be able to be sold as a business. You know, typically you're making enough money with with your crop production to pay the bills. You get wealth for the family by real estate appreciation it's a different way to think about the math and mm-hmm. I've, I've had some people not be very happy with me sharing that. But if you own, you know, a thousand acres in Iowa, you should be able to make some money with that. You're going to make money. You're probably going to do more conventional stuff and all of that comes down to your region, right? What, what's grown in your region, what processing facilities exist in your region? Cause that's going to dictate who will buy your stuff. You want to grow sunflowers in Minnesota, good luck selling them to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, But what's most important to that, like on the cattle space for us, especially if you talk to my father-in-law, he will tell you that typically you're going to make, you know, a hundred bucks a head in a good year. That's after you pay all your bills. Well, that's how you feed the family, but he will also tell you that the real estate in the ag sector typically doubles in value every seven years. Hmm. So you can't tell me at that point that you as a, you know, entrepreneur, are not in the real estate market. Mm. So when we think about regenerative versus, you know, whatever other adjectives we want to use, do we really think somebody's out there trying to just strip the soil to nothing? They can't. It's their only asset. Yeah. And I know that's a very, you know, binary way to look at. It. Like they wouldn't do that because let's be fair. Everything's got a bell curve. There are people I can point to that overgraze their overgraze their pastures that you know, maybe don't have the best soil health. They don't do cover crops. There's other things they could do that would be better. 110%, myself included. There are things that we're always like, okay, how do we work on this? It's a continual improvement model. But the math puts you as a real estate business person.
1: Full stop. Yeah. And if you want to look after that, you you got to keep it healthy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we're missing the forest for the trees again in terms of looking um, and, and speaking solely about animal uh, husbandry and agriculture when we could look at other, um, adjacent things that are coming up now, like this crazy statistic that Bill Gates is the largest owner of farmland in the United States. And he's not out there trying to like do anything to do with cattle. He wants like row crops as far as the eye can see, mm-hmm. cornfields, soybeans and stuff. And so let's least... let's zoom that out a little bit. Okay. The tax structure around
2: agricultural production ground is amazing. Mm. I do. I think the guy is without fault. Absolutely not. I think he's got some weird stuff going on. Mm -hmm. But if there's a great data point for everybody that doesn't know, if you take 1976 to 2016, downtown Manhattan real estate, prime commercial real estate, was a 10X million dollar property worth 10 million 40 years later. In that same time period, that Ag real estate ground, high production ground with, you know, water rights or in a region you don't need irrigation was a 16 X. Mm. Do I think he's without fault? No, but Warren Buffett has bought into the ag industry. He bought Limar. He's bought other in other investments because food and water are one of the biggest things our society has to worry about now. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you watch the movie, the big short talking mm-hmm. about the housing crisis, what did that mad scientist like at the very end of the movie? the mad scientist that was like figuring out all the puts and everything on the market. The next thing he's looking at is the water market. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not defending Bill Gates, but the tax structure around the amount of money he needs to invest. Agriculture is a no brainer. Mm -hmm. You get bonus depreciation. There's a ton of other things you get to do that you don't get to do outside of ag. There's a special tax code for agriculture. It's called a schedule F for farm. So like I said, I'm not taking any blame off the guy. But if somebody handed me a billion dollars and said, "What are you going to do?" Mm-hmm. As the ag guy, of course, you would think I would do that. I mean, I'm going to buy a really sweet place in Phoenix, <laughs> and then <laughs> and after that, I'm going to buy some other ag ground because of the tax bri- the tax yeah. benefits. Um, and do I, do I think he's evil? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah. have enough data to have an opinion. But I could play devil's advocate on the economic side, yeah, and say, oh, "Well, that's what I would do." That's smart, yeah, yeah.
1: And I love, I, I, I love that. I love that you can play devil's advocate because that's that's the problem, right? If you've decided Bill Gates is evil and he's part of this, you know, cabal and Agenda 2030, and they want to depopulate the earth, and now he's bought that land to control it, and he's only going to create impossible burgers, and they're going to spray this stuff everywhere, and it's poisoning you, and it's going to make you vegan, and it's going to make you allergic to beef, and oh, okay, right, all evil. But right. if you think. Bill Gates is the most intelligent philanthropist on the world, and he's going to save us with lab-grown meats and Beyond Burgers and stuff. Then you see that as a good thing. Then the truth is usually somewhere in the middle, right? And that's well, in two hundred thousand
2: do. acres doesn't do that much.
1: It's not mm. that big of a deal. It's not going
2: to impact the food system. Oh, well, that's good to know. I mean, two hundred thousand acres. I don't know if we got anybody around here with a Google machine. Uh, how many acres are in the U.S.? How right. many how many arable acres are in the U.S.? It's in the hundreds of millions. Oh wow, okay. doesn't matter. I mean. Yeah. I don't wanna say it doesn't matter. It's not near the issue that people wanna make it out to be. Good. I mean, I believe, actually, if you looked at Chinese investment interest, they own more land than Bill Gates, and I may worried. I'm way more worried about that. That's interesting. Or Saudi Arabia growing alfalfa in Phoenix, down in the uh, Arizona area, depleting aquifers so they can send alfalfa back to Saudi Arabia for their dairies. Because they were using so much water in Saudi Arabia that they outlawed alfalfa farming over there and they grow it all in the States. Now use our water and then ship the hay overseas.
1: Let's mm. talk about that. No way. Yeah. What's yeah. the Chinese interest?
2: Oh, they I mean, they own Syngenta, they own Smithfield. Um, they're, they're buying into the food industry at an alarming rate. Um, and the production space, they're buying other real estate and things like that. Mm. Um, like actually, uh, uh, Mike Baker, former CIA, CIA guy, yeah. he goes on Rogan's podcast all the time. Go like three rows back and he talks about they were buying real estate next to something and why how Huawei is no longer allowed on US government installations like I think we got to worry about some of that stuff before Bill Gates my humble opinion no it's a good point. formed on nothing other than Mike Baker and Joe Rogan but
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's good. It's it's good to lump yourself in with that, and you know the the, the conspiracy theorists. No, but I, in all seriousness, I think you're um, you're a guy that warrants listening to because you're in it. You know, like a lot of us pontificating about what this means mm-hmm. are not ranchers, are not farmers. We're a lot of us are in our concrete jungle boxes. You know, making opinions about stuff that we really don't understand. Like when you reframe that just now, that in in the grand scheme of the usable acreage on the land, that even if Bill Gates is the largest owner, it's still. Um, Small, like minuscule almost. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of like a, oh, okay, well, that reframes my thinking around that a little bit. I still, you know, I mean, no one wouldn't say I'm Bill Gates' biggest fan by any means, oh,
2: but it, 100% I'm in that same camp. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing to consider do you really think he's investing all that money in real estate to not do anything with it? Mm-hmm. He's not taking it out of production. It would be insane. Like he didn't get to where he's at by making really stupid moves. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> now, do I think they're, again, without some sort of nefarious issue probably not but i think there's bigger things we got to worry about
1: yeah 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 and i think those um issues are much closer to home and in our homes and how we feed ourselves and what we're really you know not getting distracted by and I want to focus on that a little bit because I obviously want to, um, you know, come full circle on your product, on what you're actually doing uh, with Colorado craft beef and the deliciousness that is to be had there. But I'm also curious about your story from a health perspective. Mm -hmm. You've been on quite a journey, right? I think I heard you say you tipped the scales over 300 when your daughter was born and this started a cascade of rediscovering your own health. Tell us a Mm -hmm. little bit about that. Yeah. uh, So our oldest was born
2: uh, November, right before COVID, November of 19. And I had fooled myself into thinking that I was not as unhealthy as I was. And that was, you know, well, I can, I'm working on barbed wire fence. I'm doing all the things I need to do. I'm okay. Well, I was wrong. And, you know, luckily Dr. Baker, Dr. Sean Baker, carnivore diet guy. uh, I met him at Dr. Jamie Seaman's VIP event with Redmond Real Salt in Omaha right before COVID kicked off. Emma was about six months old or six weeks old. And Dr. Baker looked at me and we'd worked with him for like three years at that point. And he goes, have you tried the carnivore diet? And man, I gave him, I don't know how many excuses, (laughs) as many as I could muster. And he's like, you own a beef company. You've not tried carnivore. What possibly can you defend that with? I was Mm -hmm. like, well, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) And the next morning we left Omaha, we were on our way back to the ranch and Dr. Baker tagged Mm -hmm. me on social media picture of me and him standing together. And he said, uh, Hey, Jeff's doing 90 days carnivore going to keep us. And I was like, <laughs> well then <laughs> and Dr. Baker's mentioned a couple times, I gave you a gentle nudge. It was like, okay, that's what we'll call it. But you paid professional rugby. So potentially a gentle nudge yeah. from you is not the same to someone else. And my wife asked me, she goes, what are you going to do? And mind you, she's been fit her whole life. Mm. I mean, she comes from a very blessed family with metabolism and things. And <laughs> I just don't. And she goes, what are you going to do? And I said, I think it is political suicide not to uh, at least play the game. And started losing weight, uh, kept at it. You know, I'm three years in. I'm down about 80 some pounds. Amazing. And I got into jujitsu. But, you know, to the dichotomy and the lack of the true false, I had to come to terms with myself and say, I'm not trading the current bad relationship I have with food for another bad relationship with food. And I had to find that balance for myself. Mm. That was probably the hardest part. Uh, cause if I stay super on the wagon, man, that fall off the wagon is catastrophic. Uh, so I've had to learn how to balance things, you know, like yesterday, uh, you know, rolled with the B team guys and went and grabbed lunch and then didn't have dinner, mm-hmm. um, but I've learned the one meal a day and how to moderate and how to work all that together and. That is one of the things that my wife and I are very, very passionate about with our girls is teaching them that. Yeah. Because I didn't know it. I was never taught that growing up. Uh, loved my mom to death. She was an amazing cook. But regardless of what the instance was, we solved it with food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you, you won a competition. You did whatever. Hey, let's have some food. Oh, you had a bad day. Let's have some food. Like food was just the safety net. That got burned into my brain is, you know, one, the social aspect, but two, this safety blanket that just you could retreat to that. And that is something we are working diligently to not have. And that was the biggest learning curve for me. And then learning how to exercise and learning how to exercise in a way that I can continue to do it yeah. from a mental space. I freaking hate lifting weights. Yeah, I would rather go work. But that's what I grew up doing. Like, I'll go build fence every day time, time allowing, of course, I would rather do that. Mm-hmm. Which is why jujitsu came naturally to me because one, if you're in a jujitsu uh, conflict with another guy and you're not paying attention to that, you're going to get choked. Yeah. So for me, it's a mental clarity thing. It wipes everything away. I can't focus on what emails I need to send or the phone call I was supposed to get and I didn't, or, you know, going through the deal that we just finished um, that I'm sure we'll get into jujitsu was my salvation because it allowed me to not lean back towards food. It allowed me to find an outlet and it gave me the space that I had to focus on and my mental clarity would come back. Mm. And all those things pre jujitsu, pre kids, pre everything led me to, I'm going to have another beer. I'm going to have a cocktail. I'm going to, yeah, whatever. I'll have a cookie today. It's fine. Well, you do that for 35 years, it causes some issues.
1: Yeah, it'll catch up with you eventually, right? I think um, what you said there is so valuable that it's not as simple sometimes as picking whatever diet you're gonna ascribe to and just running with it and fixing all your problems because a lot of the problems have arisen from um, earlier stuff, unmet Mm -hmm. needs, the way we were raised, our relationship to food. I'm curious how pivotal in understanding and kind of refiguring all that stuff out and healing it was, how pivotal was it to work with a health coach on that journey? I've heard you mention this in the past and I'm mm-hmm. partial to health coaching because it's what I do too. And I think it's, uh, it doesn't get enough focus sometimes because people, especially men, you know, we have this lone uh, lone wolf mentality. Like I'll just, I'll listen to Sean Baker on a podcast. I'll listen to Paul and I'll just do it and I'll figure it all out. Mm-hmm. But there's this deeper layer. Uh, what, was, what was that like for you to just have, have somebody in it with you? It was interesting. Um, and
2: you know, probably the weirdest thing about that was the gentleman that helped me out. Um, great, great guy he didn't charge me and he should have. I mean, the amount of handholding he gave me was incredible. And in that way, I felt like I owed him Man, I have to perform for this guy. He's donating his mm. time. How, how much of a jackass am I if I don't execute on what he's trying to help me with? If I don't give him at least a solid effort, man, I'm, I'm not just doing myself a disservice, but that's disrespectful to him and that's not how we do things. And I'm curious, had I been paying him, if I would have had a different thought process with that. Mm. That's where I'm kind of, I wouldn't say twisted up, but curious. Like, if I'd been paying him, I'd be like, whatever, dude, I'm paying you. I'm paying you. Get get off my ass. Like, I'll do it how I want. And and that was the thing that helped me the most. Yeah. And he came to me. I didn't go search him out. Um, Had I thought about that 10 years ago? Maybe I would have. I don't know. Um, But when Emma was born and I was sitting in the hospital, I was 37. And I was like, oh, man, I'm like 315 right now, 320. When she's 18, I'm going to be 55. What am I going to do with an 18-year-old when I'm 55? Because this current trajectory as the math guy is not beneficial. How am I going to whip an 18-year-old's butt for treating my daughter poorly if I'm a fat (laughs) sack of shit? (laughs) That was the, the first motivation. And then, you know, watching the girls play and being able to roll around with them and and be an active dad. Like that was a not negotiable. And I don't know. Um, actually me and a couple of the other guys we do some business with have joked, you know, we've all had kids later in life. It's like, man, if we'd have had him 10 years before the amount of growing up, we did becoming older dads. Mm -hmm. I'm like, gosh, I could have used that a decade ago, but then I also wouldn't be in business where I was. Exactly. So again, trade offs to everything. Um, but you've got to find what works for you and what's repeatable. Yeah. Um, and not beat yourself up. That's the thing. A lot of the people I know that are on the health journey, especially when you start where I did, man, you have a bad day. Mm -hmm. Now you feel bad. Now you have two bad days. Now you have three bad days. You gotta be realistic. You've got to have that mental clarity to, you know, look at your trend. I mean, I do some business consulting and that's what I talk to guys about. Well, this month was bad. I'm like, okay, well bad. How? You know, let's look at the math. Let's look at the trend. Are you doing better than you were a year ago? You know, are you talking finance? Are you talking operations? What do we do? Because complaining about something without a solution is called whining. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: There's a very distinct difference between whining and problem solving Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and being able to be in that spot that you can get creative and understand if something is really as bad as you think it is, um, food or otherwise. And that's been the biggest thing for me um, is being able to put the problem solving of the business world into my health journey and you know try to balance it in a way that's functional
1: yeah there's a lot of really good stuff in there you know the marcus aurelius what stands in the way becomes the way this Mm -hmm. problem that you are whining about could actually be the platform to launch you into higher levels of operational stuff from a business standpoint or just like some deep self-reflection of like hey this needs to change and Nothing quite shaking your snow globe snow globe up like having a kid will do, right? Really put things into perspective. Yeah, I think you're on the verge of that, right? Yeah, yeah, for the <laughs> second time. So I've already, you know, grown up once and about to grow up again. But yeah, it really just has a way of um, you know, zooming you out for a minute and really getting you to see what's important. You said you looked at your trajectory uh, from a numbers perspective as a numbers guy. And I often think about we should be much more concerned with our current trajectory than our current results. Mm -hmm. We're too like in the now about like whether it's working or not. oh, you know, I only lost two pounds this week. Oh God, I gained 10, whatever it is. Well, just start really focusing on your trajectory because you said a key word, which is sustainability Mm -hmm. and like consistency. The best diet is the one you can stick to forever because you. everybody has a diet. Maybe mm-hmm. not, not everybody frames it that way, but we all have a diet. A lot of people's diet needs work, so we've got to find something that is health-promoting, that is enjoyable and fun and sustainable. And for some people, that's going to look way different than it does for other people, similar to exercise. People ask me all the time, what's the best exercise I can do? So the one that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. what are you having fun doing if if you hate lifting weights and i tell you you got to do a bro split three days a week in the gym that's the worst advice i could possibly give you Mm -hmm. but if i learn you love jujitsu i'm like do as much jujitsu as your body can handle and then fix the nutrition and focus on all these things so well and i was at dr baker's house about
2: a month ago and he looked at me and he goes where's your weight at i said i'm up about 20 pounds from when i was here last year Mm. And because and, when I got there, my goal was I turned 40 in September last year. And I said, I'm going to be at my lowest adult weight on my 40th birthday. And I nailed it. Mm-hmm. Did really well. And I'm up approximately 20 pounds since then. But Dr. Baker pulled up the picture and he's looking at me because he took a picture when I was there last year. Dude, you look better. Mm-hmm. I said, Walk me through that because I'm looking at the numbers, man. He goes, no. He goes, your, your body realigned where it's at. He goes, you're packing more muscle, muscle. on your shoulders. You're packing more muscle on your chest. Jiu-jitsu clearly working for you. Well, if you don't have people like that that understand. He's like, your body reproportioned because you're not packing all that extra shit anymore. Man, it never occurred to me. There you go. And it's and it's that level of understanding. It's a, and being open to talk to a guy. Yeah, right. You know, it's, it's a journey. Everything's a journey. And then you get a guy that I'm like, oh. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And then he asked me, he's like, well, are, are you wearing different pants? I said, no, pants are all the same. That's perfect. Your upper body, you're repartitioning, you're getting muscle where you've never had it. I'm like, shit. Okay. Now I feel better, but you know, then I ate a whole bunch of steak with him. I went and got beat up by Greg Anderson's guys at electric <laughs> North Jitsu and in, in Issaquah. But it's, it's just trying to keep everything moving in the right direction. Yeah. You know, there's no silver bullet to any of this stuff. I mean, can you imagine if you actually made a diet pill that made everybody have a six pack? Mm-hmm. You couldn't buy enough goddamn airplanes. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It would be amazing. But it's, and that's one of the reasons I love jujitsu. I forgot who said it, but it's like jujitsu won't let you lie. You mm-hmm. get out everything you put in, period. There's no hack. You just got to get beaten. And it's a there's, I have some of my good buddies that are like, dude, I could not do that. My ego won't take that. I was like, yeah. I think it was my third class. This like 14 year old kid, his name's Serge, competition uh, kid at our gym, triangled me like it was his job. Mm -hmm. He was like 14. I was 38. (laughs) I got 100 pounds on this kid and I re-rolled him and he caught me with a triangle and I just just gave him a high five. I was like, freaking great job, dude. For me, I'm like, okay, that's humbling. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do with that? As opposed to
1: well, I didn't like that. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I often speak to people who have, you know, accomplished some cool stuff. A lot of athletes have, have sat in this chair, and it's always interesting to me that they reflect that their um, the biggest growth came through the losses. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the moments where their ego was crumbled. Maybe they thought they were the baddest man on the planet, and then the next thing, the waking up under the lights, like, oh shit, I got knocked out. How many
2: people are screaming right yeah, now? Yeah, it's like, a lot. <laughs> and, and and
1: there's some some real wisdom in that. That chosen adversity, like going to jujitsu class a couple times a week where for a long time, you're going to get your ass beat over mm-hmm. and over and over like again. Like it's your job. Yes. Like it's your <laughs> job and taking it and not wallowing in your self pity, but saying like, all right, I know if I stick this out long enough because of that magic of consistency again, one day I'm going to be the hammer, not the nail, you mm-hmm. know? And Rome wasn't built in a day, but they were stacking bricks every hour. That's the yeah. pit we often miss. So you do you remember the poker bricks. movie rounders? No, I don't think Matt Damon,
2: Edward Norton, right? Great poker movie uh matt damon was doing a voiceover towards the end and he said uh you know very few poker players can remember the great hands they've ever had but they can all remember with unmistakable clarity the bad beats of their career mm-hmm.
1: and there's nothing truer been said mm-hmm. that's so good speaking of bad beats mm-hmm. um you've had the chance through um the beef company and the connections that you form, and of sponsoring some pretty cool people collaborating with some pretty cool people getting your ass beat by some pretty cool people how excited are you to actually roll with the man mountain that is jocko willing
2: you know as the white belt you're not supposed to ask them to roll so i didn't uh so yeah we'll just roll right into that uh you know just recently we uh completed a partnership deal uh with the three founders of jocko Fuel, so brian littlefield pete roberts the original founder of origin and Jocko himself Uh, we've got a bunch of other guys that came in on the partnership deal so Travis Mills uh, quad amputee from the 82nd Airborne got blown Mm -hmm. up in Afghanistan Uh, the darkest joke of my entire life he shared with me one day uh, when we met him up in Maine about a month ago Uh, dr. Baker came in as a partner Uh, a bunch of Jocko's other guys like Dave Burke uh, came in and then uh, the nutrition guy that's actually part of it is uh, Chris Cavallini came Mm in um, from nutrition solutions Um, but it's been incredible because not just, you know, did they like the business? Did they like the model? Do they love being a part of the ranching community? Sure. But the company that my wife and I founded was agreed to and supported through that level of, you know, basically business financial deep diving and forensics of what the company does. It survived the test and the guys came on and that's uh, something that we never thought would happen. So the adversity was there Mm -hmm. and it's pretty funny. I had some people that are like, well, what if, you know, there's a lot of work to do. Aren't you worried about that? (laughs) Hell no, I'm not worried about that. It took a year to get the deal done. The number of nights that i was worried i was going to get a phone call the next day just erasing everything mm-hmm. that's some adversity Jiu Jitsu saved me through
1: that whole process because i couldn't think about it for four hours a week you mm. <laughs> oh, know that's so good yeah that peace from mind not even peace of mind just peace from it so you can drop into something <clears> where <throat> you can leave all of those stresses for a little bit whether it's jujitsu crossfit breathwork meditation fishing whatever it is but to have that is is uh like you said it's a salvation in so many ways to give you that like okay and now you know on the other side of that being able to hold yourself together and stay grounded enough through it now you've built a you're building a team around you mm-hmm. that um can take this thing way further than you ever could alone again that collaboration beats competition yeah. so let's talk about that let's actually talk about the product and what you're doing a little bit differently with colorado craft beef and even, you know, all the way through the dry aging process and why these guys, why, why, they, why these guys, you know, love and support that. Obviously, it's delicious and not something else like running over to somewhere else. What makes you different? You know, uh, what's that
2: quote from Talladega Nights? Will Ferrell, you know, I wake up every morning I Piss Excellence. <laughs> <laughs> Back to, you know, starting the podcast as a humble guy. Um, you know, I think the resonance of the story of what we do. You know, there's, there's no BS in the middle of mm-hmm. it. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look through our Instagram or you look at the webpage or you listen to any number of podcasts Kara and I have done, it's the same story, you know, we're and we're not talking in circles about where we get our product or how we do X, Y, Z. No, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. We are intentional. Um, and if you take that to the origin and Jocko fuel messages and the, that group of people, you know. American made, serving American people, American manufacturing, American jobs. Man, you you don't get better than that. Mm -hmm. Um, I made this comment on Greg Anderson's podcast and I said, you know, the only thing in my humble opinion that even competes with an American soldier defending our freedom is a picture of a man on a horse or a woman on a horse with a cowboy hat, moving cattle on how the West was settled. And certainly the soldier and all of that makes all those other things possible. But I don't know anything that even gets close to number three.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, we're in Texas right now. You know, you can read uh, empire of the summer moon or any of those books to understand how people horseback ranching settled the West. Mm hmm and what it means because my wife, my wife spent a summer in Germany when she was in uh, college and she's like, I walked through the Munich airport with my cowboy hat and everybody knew I was an American. Mm -hmm. That's cool. You know, ranching is cool. And in comparison to a lot of the other people in our space back to, you know, passing the smell test with Brian and Pete and Jocko we're ranchers. Mm -hmm. We're not, buying product and repurposing or putting a label on something, you know, this comes with a story and this comes with a connection that is uncommon in our industry Mm -hmm. because I I love my brothers and sisters in ag. I really do. Some of them shouldn't go on podcasts. Some of them don't want to go on podcasts, but to take, you know, our model with Colorado craft beef, when we started the company, There's people all around us that own cows in Colorado and they, they process, you know, 10 head a year and they sell it to their friends and family. It's great. Totally support that model. We didn't want to compete with them. We invested nearly six figures in a website and market research before we ever, before we ever had any stake ready to go. Hmm. We committed. No, we are going to do this at a level. We are going to be national shipping on day one. We're going to make this a business. And we are not ranchers that happen to sell beef. This is a beef company, full stop. It's intentional. We are not doing this as a hobby. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. And when you say something like that to the Brian, the Pete, and the Jockos of the world, how do you not get buy-in?
1: Yeah, they're in. Yeah, they're like, absolutely. That's what we do. I'm sure Jocko went check.
2: (laughs) (laughs) actually uh Jocko and I've talked about three times yeah um Brian was my main point of contact but you know for everything all those guys stand for Travis included Dr. Baker Chris what you think those guys should be they are Mm -hmm. in person on a podcast on the phone they are who you expect them to be and I think us being that having that same level of of internal commitment to what we're doing and you know, Brian whipped my ass the first time I met him because we rolled jujitsu at the ranch. It did not go so well, but you know, you're in their same space. Yes. You have the same values. Yeah. You can't sell that. You, you can't put that in a pitch deck. You know, there's a relationship. We're partners, you know, investment money and all the other stuff be darned. We are business partners that are all aligned in the same direction mm-hmm. and that level of alignment is something that a lot of people in agriculture can't do with people outside of agriculture because of that translation that has to happen. You know, I mean, the number of people that heard about us with what we do with business is like, well, can you get enough cows? I'm like, that is adorable. Cows are not the problem. Demand is the problem. Mm. Cause you have to scale to a certain level to sell enough product to make it work. So your economy of scale has to get right. So with that, you know, with the partnership we put together with, uh, Jocko and all those guys, um, we bought the harvest facility that we've been using since the company started mm. and to the America first American made, you know, family mission of this, the everybody that was employed at that harvest facility is still employed there down to the previous owners. He's now part of the team. So it's not just, you know, by hook or by crook, you know, burn the boats. It's, it's collaborative top mm. to bottom. And, putting that together with those kind of people has been fun to say the very least. Uh, (laughs) actually it was right before the deal closed at a a business buddy of mine. He goes, how's it going? I said, it's going good. It's going to happen. And he goes, how do you feel about that? I was like, why the hell would you ask that? guys don't ask each other that. That's, (laughs) it's a dick move. And I said, you know, man, I moderate between, Holy shit, we're going to do this and holy shit, we're going to do this same conversation, totally different, different depiction. But you know, watching that come together and wanting to move the ranch into further generations, you know, the ranch we're on is where my wife grew up. She's fifth generation, generation six sleeps down the hall from us. Mm. And I hope generation 10 is still doing it, but they can't do that if we don't put them in a different position. Because if all you are doing is being a price taker in the beef space or in the ag space, right? You're a commodity taker. Like, you know, the products we have behind us, all the all the different stuff you guys sell, that's not commodity. There's a value add. There's different business things that have to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you wanna be a price taker and then also complain that the system isn't fair, you're whining again. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to play in the system, that's great, but don't complain. Mm -hmm. Do your very level best. There are tools at your disposal. The hard part is in a lot of agricultural experience, people are too small to take those advantages. They can't leverage their risk. They can't can't protect themselves in a way that they should, especially, you know, in the beef chain. You know, 85% of the capacity is controlled by four companies. That's a David and Goliath type of deal. Yeah, right. Or in the Colorado craft beef model. We, the harvest was, uh, harvest slots we're using right now. We spoke for in 2021. We're growing like crazy. You're making bets two years from now. So now you're constraining your growth because you can't get more harvest slots. It's a chicken and the egg, you know, put up or shut up. Mm. Or my, my favorite quote, you know, money talks and bullshit takes the bus. So it's, it's interesting watching all that come together. Uh, but what's been most fun is just watching the love of the community. Yeah. You know, the people from Jocko's community or from our community or Dr. Baker's community or Paul's community. Uh, Seeing your logo out in public is weird. It's like, you know, the number of people like, uh, I actually met Rob Wolf from Element. Yeah, was a a, legend. I was a great guy. I've never met him. And I'm up doing jujitsu in Montana when I did Andy Snuff's podcast. And I had on a craft Beef shirt. And Rob's standing there. He looks at me. He goes, do you know those guys? I was like, "I I am those guys. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't realize he lived in Kalispell. Yeah. When I look, I'm like, brown belt, element hat. You're Rob Wolf. Yeah. And we've been working together ever since. It's amazing. But he recognized the brand. Mm-hmm. It was so bizarre. I was like, and at that point, we were still, I mean, relatively small. We were bigger than the national average for mm-hmm. sure, but still pretty humble.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's just interesting to see how all that stuff works but it doesn't
1: happen if you don't put in the in the time. Bingo, yeah. Yeah, and these brands can become movements and you know, game-recognized game, as they say. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's any accident that you've aligned with the kind of people that you've aligned by, and you're potentially feeding a lot of beef to some of the most, you know integrous, leadership-driven um, American patriots on the planet right now. A lot of beef. How much? How much beef does Sean Bakery in a day? Do you think? <laughs> I think he's like three to six pounds, depending on where he wants to land. Damn.
2: Yeah. When I, when I was there last month, we both had a ribeye and a fillet, and I think combined weight on just the beef we cooked was almost four and a half pounds. And he's like, "Yeah, I might have some more later." I was like, "Okay, <laughs> I'm good till tomorrow."
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a big that's a big man right there that's a big man i want to come back to just just one point you said before we move into a couple of guest questions we had because um i think and it's so funny for me to sit here and think this now as i grew up in the northwest of england you know um there's not much ranching going on there's a lot of farming we get some beautiful pastures and stuff but like this symbolic nature of the american farmer like you said walking around with the cowboy hat on it Mm -hmm. tells a story and it's and it's cool for a lot of people, and it's inspiring. and because it's ranching's become cool, you even have shows coming up like um Yellowstone Yellowstone yeah because yeah. it, it, it's really cool, it's really empowering, but you know Yellowstone's Yellowstone it's cowboys running around blowing up cars and and it's like the meat the meat mafia, uh, not not our friends over at the podcast, but yeah. a, a story version of that. What do you think that shows like Yellowstone get wrong about ranching? Well,
2: we don't have any train stations I mean that's <laughs> You know, step one, we don't get to pull that off. Um, you know, they capture, they capture the romanticism of the lifestyle really well. The accuracy of what they do, not really. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny when they will actually have a line about what they're doing with cattle. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> like, that's, that's not quite there. Uh, but, you know, the amount of time, energy, and love they've put into the community. To bring
1: ranching and the Western way of life back to the forefront, man, you can't fault that. Beautiful, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, do we have any questions submitted through the tribe? No? Okay. Well, Not I've got a, I've got a couple more for you then. Talk to me about dry aging mm-hmm. because this has been something, um, I don't really know what it is other than it's magic because it makes the beef taste incredible. So mm-hmm. what is that process? Cause you guys, are you exclusively dry aged or dry finished, whatever you call that?
2: Well, let me unpeel the onion Please. for you. Yeah. Yeah. So typically when you see aged steak, you have wet or dry aged because, you know, like we talked about 85% of the beef comes out of big, big kill plants. Um, Harvest facilities, excuse me. Gotta yeah. got soften the land. Sounds language. a little more uh, yeah. appealing. <laughs> um, well, some of these harvest facilities harvest six or 10,000 cows a day in 16 hours. Wow. The, the math is staggering. I mean, if I did the math one time just on how many cattle they move through there and how many trucks, they have to unload a truck, a semi of cattle every three minutes just to keep the line moving. Wow. So, what you typically find when you get a wet or dry aged steak. A dry aged steak goes in a locker, like you've seen in any number of steakhouses. It's humidity controlled. the uh, The primal cut, so the prime rib, the New York, whatever, is exposed to the air, and it's drier, and it starts to wick some of the moisture out. Mm-hmm. And you get an enzymatic reaction that breaks down connective tissue, um, decreases water content, increases flavor. And that's typically what you see in a dry age, is those coolers, if you will. The wet age um, is basically that same prime rib would come out of a harvest facility. It's in a bag. Mm-hmm. The bag sits on a shelf in a refrigerator and it marinates in its own juices. Excuse me. I'm not a big fan of the wet age. Mm-hmm. It's got a different flavor profile. Uh, dry age is most common. So if you hunt deer or you hunt elk, usually hang them for a week mm-hmm. or 10 days. Same concept. You're trying to get that, the connective fibers to break down. You're trying to get things moving around. Uh, and in the beef space, especially like if you're buying beef from us, you'll get what's, you know, a pound of filet in a package, all well and good. Well, those same size steaks are 20, 30% heavier when you buy them at the store because of the water content. Ah, interesting. They eh? now cook differently. They now sear differently. The chemical reaction that happens when you cook the meat is very, very different. Mm. So that's more of the commercial dry, wet age discussion. Uh, What we're able to do, which is, you know, some of our value proposition to our customers with the harvest facility that we own, uh, we hang the entire carcass for three weeks. We dry age the whole animal Mm. where if you buy skirt steak or flank or, you know, any number of those secondary type steaks, none of those are ever aged. Mm. Uh, So we're aging the whole carcass. So we basically split the carcass. They hang in a cooler for 21 days, temperature and humidity controlled. And then we bring them out and we break that animal down into steaks. Um, So when you start eating, I'm not sure exactly which steaks you got. I know I loaded the box. I just don't know what I put in it. Um, When you get some of those secondary steaks, you'll be like, this flank steak is amazing. Yeah. Well, it's because we were able to age it. And there's really, if you take, say we were to remove the whole flank steak, you know, three to four pound steak, 20 inches long or so, but it's only like an inch thick. Mm -hmm. If you lay that out to dry age it, too much surface area, it's going to start to mold, it's not going to hold up, so you really can't age a lot of those steaks unless they're on a carcass. Interesting, because they have natural insulation. And then the, the weird part is when you get the grass finish guys that want to dry age, really the way the dry aging works is you're insulated with a fat cap on that carcass, mm-hmm. and then when you bring them out of the dry aging cooler, you trim that fat so that that aging pericarp is what they call it, which is the outer shell doesn't go with the meat on a grass finished animal that'll actually get into the meat and you can make it rancid. So you can't Mm -hmm. age grass finished like you can age grain finished. So there's all sorts of crazy meat science stuff. That's why we got Mike
1: yeah that's super interesting and it's funny because i ate um a ribeye of yours which i mean everybody loves a ribeye but i also had some ground beef yesterday for mm-hmm. lunch and you could tell that even the ground beef is uh, from a flavor profile perspective is just so rich i hadn't even seasoned it or anything and i just took a bite and i was like damn that's really tasty so that whole carcass dry aging thing is super interesting you you must have a favorite what's your personal favorite depends i i really love a, a like
2: really all steak uh Depends on the time of year. Mm-hmm. Like, on a, I love smoked meatballs. So mm-hmm. when I'm really on the wagon trying to eat really clean, I'll smoke four or five pounds of meatballs and just eat them all week. Yeah. Uh, ribeye, of course, is outstanding. Um, I think the unsung hero is the bavette.
1: Bavette. The yeah.
2: Bottom sirloin. Yeah. So if you go to a fogo de chow and they come out, it's that really flaky. It's amazing, and there's a lot of people that don't really acknowledge how good that is.
0: Mm-hmm
1: and I'm okay with that because it means we're overstocked at the ranch and we just have flapstick. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for, you know, um, the conversation today. It was a lot of fun to hear your insights on, you know, farming as a, as a the thing that we do, that we must do to feed people as a, as a business, also your journey into it, your collaborations, your personal health journey. Mm-hmm. It was really cool and interesting conversation. I want to open up the last couple of minutes here for you to take the floor and say anything that wants to be said, um, anything that's on your heart. And of course, if not, uh, where could people go to find more about Colorado craft Beef and what's coming down the pipe for you guys, what's exciting, a lot I'm sure of, but mm-hmm. uh, what's really coming uh, through for you right now. So the most interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people
2: understand in the food space is the capacity at which we have to operate as a country to feed people. Now, the process, any number of these food processes can be improved. We need to work on that, but understand that in the United States, we harvest 36 million cows a year. Wow. And we harvest 125 million pigs a year. And we harvest 2 billion chickens a year. Billions. So if, with a book, with a buh. yes. So if we are going to change that system radically to use a word from some people I've met recently, <laughs> we have to understand what we're doing. We have to be very deliberate because a hungry person has one problem. They're hungry. There are people around the world that are hungry and we live in a society where we are, Fortunate enough to be able to worry about why we're hungry and what we're hungry for. Mm -hmm. You know, take some trips, look around a little bit, look at what the, what the world impact is because we're not just feeding ourselves. We're feeding the world in a huge way. Um, You know, the, the national security implications of the food system where we send product overseas, we do a lot in the ag world that a lot of people don't understand. Mm and
1: the more we can look at that is a big deal. It sounds like a very big deal and I'm glad to have people in the space like you that are seeing it uh, in the, in that way, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of boats out there. There's a lot of people to feed on those boats.
2: There is. And man, you want to start seeing societal upset. You know, you go to a city like downtown Austin, you know, 30 minutes from here. If the trucks stop moving tomorrow, you're maybe two days mm-hmm. from some real bad stuff. So let's, uh, let's understand we need continual improvement,
1: but let's not uh, cut off our foot because our toe itches. Mm. Beautiful. What's the, what's the call to action on the consumer side of this, the person that's listening to this? Um, what do they? Wh- where could they go to just stay um, more conscious of the mm-hmm. things we're talking about? What can they do? So
2: Will Harris actually talked about this on Rogan's podcast. He talked about us being too consumptive. You know, we as a as a population, how many shirts do we have? How many shoes do we have? That's that's one concept. The one that I really try to champion is vote with your dollar and understand that if you're buying a laptop or you're buying a watch or you're buying a T-shirt, you're supporting that system. Whatever it is, you know, if you buy an Origin T-shirt, it's U.S. cotton, mm-hmm. sewn in Maine, actually weaved in Maine, they weave everything on site. And it's going to cost a little more. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you have to buy that, but understand where you're spending your resources. Understand what systems you're contributing to. Because if we as a group all decide that certain systems need more support than others, we as a society, you know, U.S. and otherwise, can start to drive that in the way that should involve continual change. But if you're supporting systems... That don't stand for what you believe in because you're buying things that come out of those systems you know what are what are we doing you know be intentional you know yeah. we're, we're intentional with the beef company we're intentional with everything we do and i think you know most of you guys are and i think a lot of people are very intentional in certain aspects yeah but how you spend your money is a big driver to all of these things uh you know uh breaking points mm-hmm. so I've heard them on Rogan's podcast a couple of times, man, they bashed the living crap out of Amazon. And then two sentences later, yeah, my Amazon order's coming on Tuesday. <laughs> you gotta pick one. Yeah. And I'm not saying we can be totally clear. Like we try to buy local as much as we can, but sometimes we can't, sometimes you run out of time. So it, there's any number of excuses, but you know, let's be realistic in what we're all trying to do and do our very best to be intentional with our health,
1: with how we develop or devote our resources and everything else. No, it's, it's, it's really powerful. And I think the whole of, um, self-development and holistic development of our systems and comes down to, um, you know, an aphorism, like easy choices, harder life, harder choices, easier life. And the harder choice might be, you need to be a little bit more aware. You need to spend an extra $10 here where you otherwise would want to go for the cheaper route, but you choose your heart, right? And that's a good way to finish, man. Where can people go to learn more about what you're up to, and and maybe even buy a good old box of meat and see what you've got working with over there?
2: Yeah. So ColoradoCraftBeef.com. I gotta call this out, or our marketing guy's gonna yell at me. Uh, Sign up for the newsletter. Okay. You know we've got some new product launches coming. That's where all of our sales come through. They come through direct emails. Sometimes they make it to social, but we're building a community. We're not just trying to sell steak. the newsletter's big we do you know every couple months we'll do a ranch update um then that's really where we're at social of course it's colorado craft beef on all of those and then uh you know support who you want to myself or otherwise and that you know to close will harris's comment he's like i don't expect you to buy everything from me Mm -hmm. i'm very much in the same camp but go be
1: informed Mm -hmm. love it thank you jeff i appreciate you man yeah thanks for having me on thank you very much fam see you out there Bye-bye next week. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.